Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Thief and the Cobbler, aka one of the weirdest movie productions you will ever hear about. From the Academy Award-winning animator of Who Framed Roger Rabbit comes an extraordinary new adventure. Behold the wonders of Arabian Night. Journey to a faraway land guarded by magic. We are safe from any threat as long as those three golden balls are on the minaret. Where a wicked <laughs> wizard schemes to steal the throne. The world is mine to take! And a thick-headed thief paves the way for disaster. The balls are gone! Now, only the courage of a beautiful princess. But she is more than this. The determination of a humble shoemaker. What is your name? I'm Tack. And the help of some outrageous new friends. I am Ruthless, the chieftain. Can save an enchanted kingdom. Just like they miss. Get ready to battle the one-eyes. <laughs> Boogie with the brigands. <laughs> and go for the gold. With the first animated motion picture created in widescreen cinemascope in over three decades. Featuring the lyrics of Oscar-winning songwriter Norman Gimbel and the voices of Vincent Price. Gentlemen, what a delight. And Jonathan Winters. Good morning, Arabia. Arabian Night. Okay, so this is a weird one. We had an animated movie suggested to us. Uh, that I looked at just briefly and thought, oh, it looks like sort of a an Aladdin knockoff, and uh, seems to have been released in the uh, early nineties. Okay, that's that's fine. It, it looks interesting enough. I got hold of it on DVD, and we sat down and watched it. And immediately, it was like something's wrong here. Something's weird. It's called The Thief and the Cobbler, and I was okay. Right. So when was this released? Because it seems like I'm getting a mix of things here at this point. Um, you know, it has a, a, a title sequence that looks straight out of the 80s with that beautiful glittery font. And then it has Yellow Submarine style, very flat animation uh, with uh, moving on a, a, a horizontal plane. And it has like tripped out ball sequences. And yet it was released in 1993. Okay, right, let's get to the bottom of this. And this film was released in 1993, September 93. A mere 10 months after Aladdin was released in November of 92. But it was begun in 1964, which gives it the longest production time of any animated film to date. Apparently there is a Russian film which was begun in 1981 and still has yet to be released. That will then snatch the title if they ever release it. But this is something else. So what I'm going to do, we watched it twice today. And there are two versions of it. Uh, we watched the the horribly compromised DVD version, and then we watched the kind of fan edit version that is on YouTube right now. 
we've got a much better grasp of it, but now I can talk Sharon through what I read earlier about the actual production of this thing from the from the word go. Um, and I'm going to talk you guys through it, because basically the production of it is so much more interesting than everything that happens in the movie. And we can break off to discuss, as we hit certain bits, how this comes out in the final film. Um, so, I mean, you basically, like, imagine a really low-budget Aladdin... And you're already like 80% of the way there. So, but we just need to give you the specifics. So, in 1964, a chap named Richard Williams, and he is the godfather of this project. He's the guy you need to remember. He doesn't have his own Wikipedia page. And I think that's kind of sad. Because basically, this is his life. This is everything he's ever really achieved that's noteworthy enough to really talk about. It's to do with The Thief and the Cobbler. And it's an animator's film it's for it's for animators to pass around to each other and go this is interesting isn't it and for like you know super animation aficionados it it does not serve or function as a movie you can really show kids it will confuse and alarm them <laughs> and uh so anyway richard williams that was a kind of a joker laugh <laughs> it's a bit of a hamel joker uh, so, Richard Williams, a Canadian animator living in the United Kingdom, was running an animation studio assigned to animate commercials. See, I can't even find out how old Richard Williams was when he started this, because he doesn't have his own Wikipedia page. Let's say probably in his 20s, at the, you know, mid to late 20s at the latest. He was running an animation studio assigned to animate commercials and special sequences for live-action films. Uh, Williams illustrated... Th- I'm just going to read all of this from Wikipedia. So I mean, you could feasibly basically find, you know, just read all of these facts yourself in your own time. But I think uh, what we have to say about what came of this is probably worthy of discussion. Sharon, are you going to talk? Yes. Sharon is here, by the way. She's I just am. ill. I'm not very well and... Bad chest, bad throat, okay. so I'm keeping it to a minimum. But okay. I will speak if I have anything of significance to say. Williams illustrated a series of books by Idris Shah, which collected the tales of Mullah Nasruddin. Nasruddin was a philosophical yet wise fool of Near Eastern folklore. Williams began development work on a film based on the stories with Shah and his family championing production. So basically, the short of that is an animator... Uh, who was uh, illustrating a series of books, said, we should do a movie of this stuff. What you then do is you write a spec script, you know, like a treatment of basically what happens in this movie. It it covers several pages. And then you write a script for the movie. And so it has a beginning, a middle and an end, an antagonist, a protagonist, uh, you know, narrative thrust to it that doesn't dawdle for 36 minutes in a a 70-minute film that that's what you start with. Here's what you don't do. <laughs> Spend 32 years on a carousel. <clears throat> Idris Shah demanded 50% of the profits from the film, and Idris Shah's sister, Amina Shah, who had done some of the translations for the Nasruddin book, claimed that she owned the stories. So, I, I would imagine these are ancient stories that were uh, translated by the this lady who now... The fact that it says here claimed that she owned the stories adds a certain amount of spuriousness to this particular sense of ownership. Well, I su- yeah, I mean, I guess it's the kind of thing where if somebody had written a load of Grimm's Tales but put their own slant on it. Wait, wait, hang on. If you made a King Arthur film, would you owe the person who wrote Maud Arthur or T.H. White money? You know, it's it's legend. 
if you took elements that were exclusive to their versions of the story, yes. Wow. Hang on. So uh, she demanded 50% of the profits in the film. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Production took place at Richard Williams Productions in Soho Square, London. So basically, London animators just getting in on it and going, let's make a movie, it's 1964, it's swinging London. An early reference of the project came in 1968 at the International Film Guide, which noted that Williams was about to begin work on the first of several films based on the stories featuring Mullah Nasruddin. Williams took on television and feature film title projects in order to fund his project and work his film uh, and work on his film progressed slowly. So basically, this was a passion project for him. He was working to fund this. Uh, Williams hired legendary Warner Brothers animator Ken Harris as chief animator on the project, which was entitled then The Amazing Nasrudin. Designer Roy Naisbitt was hired to design backgrounds for the film. The promotional art showed intricate Indian and Persian designs. In 1970, six years later, the project was retitled The Majestic Fool. For the first time, the potential distributor for the independent film was mentioned... British Lion Film Corporation. The International Film Guide noted that Williams Studio staff had increased to 40 people for the production of the feature. Okay, 40 people working flat out can, in a few years, surely, with some funding, make a 70-minute animated film. You would think. You would think. Uh, Williams gained further attention when he and the studio producer a TV, uh, produced a TV adaptation of A Christmas Carol for Chuck Jones, uh, which won Studio and Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film. Dialogue tracks for the film now being referred to as just Nasrudin, so he's gone back again to Nasrudin, were recorded at this time. Actor Vincent Price was hired to perform the voice of the villain Anwar, later renamed Zigzag. Right, Vincent Price stayed in the film all the way through. You watch the film right now today in any version, Vincent Price is going to be in it. He's probably the best thing in it. I do wonder, actually, if this there were 40 people working on a production of the feature, given that, from the sounds of things, even Richard Williams was only working on it in his spare time. Yeah. I don't think that was 40 people it was, working Yeah, it wasn't time. a constant 40-person staff, because that, I mean, that... You, you'd have no excuse for not coming up with something then. Mm. I, it might just be 40 people dotted around the country communicating with him via letter. Snail mail. Uh, originally, this role was assigned to Kenneth Williams. Oh, hello, Medeiros. Sir Anthony Quayle was cast as King Nod. Price was hired to make the villain more enjoyable for Williams. Uh, that's uh, Richard Williams. Not to make it more enjoyable for Kenneth Williams, as he was a great fan of Vincent Price's work and Zigzag was based on two people Williams hated. By 1972, so that's eight years into the production, and the studio, the, Williams and the studio had animated around three hours of footage for Nasrudin. Okay, I don't get it. I do. Like, you've got three hours of footage. You can, can there's you? A movie in there's that. a movie in that. Can you just go to go to that with an editor's knife at this point? Before you animated three hours worth of footage for the film, wouldn't it have been an idea to do storyboards and a script and just, like, plan this out? We haven't even mentioned the cobbler or the thief yet. (sighs) Three hours! What was in those three hours? A lot of what we're approaching this from is actually kind of inspired by one moment in the old GameSpot podcast from circa, what, 2006, 2007? The Hotspot. Back before these guys left to become Giant Bomb. 
and they were talking about Duke Nukem Forever. Now, before we carry on, The Thief and the Cobbler is still better than Duke Nukem Forever in any version of itself. But the point they're making here for the next four minutes is about the amount of time put into making that game, or indeed not making that game. All right, here's another Fight one. Back. This Brotherhood. Is, this is this is a story that was a lot more fun to make fun of before uh, this recent update, but uh, maybe we'll still find something for I th- it. I think it's still pretty easily right, made it's, fun of. It's pretty good. All right, there's, uh, as we know, GameSpot News likes to keep up on the stock tips and the SEC filings and everything. And in a Take-Two filing with the SEC, it was revealed that 3D Realms has a $500,000 incentive to finish Duke Nukem Forever by the end of this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. So it's going to happen, right? Um, not, a, I mean, not according to, to George Broussard. Half a million yeah. dollars, why wouldn't you finish it, right? Yeah. Dude. Yeah. yeah. That's money. That's bank. That's totally bank. Right. What, what did George Broussard say, Brad? He said, nah. Okay. He said, when it's done. Yeah, basically. <laughs> he, yeah. he said, he the, said. The, the, three, the, the 3D Realms company line at this point, when it's done. Yeah. It's been yeah. in development since 1997. Uh, yeah, at this and point. apparently well, they just got the guns working. Uh, what's, what's another year or two when it's been almost a decade in there? Yeah. I, I at this why? Why would? Okay. <laughs> well, here imagine, it comes. Here it imagine comes. Imagine how much time at 3D Realms has been wasted keeping this game current with the times. If they are still actually working on it and still planning on releasing it, this game was like the Quake Two engine at some point. Yep. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> what could they possibly be doing? That this game is not done yet. I've said it a thousand times. The game is a lie. It never existed. It is a way to get money out of Activision the, to we, keep George Broussard's internet porn collection going. This, like, seriously. Okay, <laughs> they, they probably generated assets three or four times and had to dump them all or go back to them all because they just weren't good enough anymore. Think about how far games have come since 1997. We do have screenshots Leaps. and a trailer up on the site, which I think might have been from E3 2000 From like 99 or, or 2000, 2000 yeah, 98 or 99. Well, at yeah. that point, I think it was using, like, the Unreal 1 or Unreal, Unreal Tournament, I think, is the engine. Yeah, maybe, at that point. yeah. And so, like, I, I heard, I was on a bus with some people that work in the video game business at uh-huh. some pre-E3 event like three years ago, and I heard one guy turn to the other and go, you know, I got to go see Duke Nukem Forever. It's, it's looking all right. And that was three years ago. It's still not out. <laughs> so even if what he saw then looked good, how could it possibly look good now? They have to be doing like the most amazing, not a generic first-person shooter gameplay with that, or they need to be riding the, the bleeding edge of technology, but... I just can't imagine they're doing either at this point, and it's just ridiculous. The game will come out. It will be $20. And, you know, of course, anytime anyone says anything about Duke Nukem Forever other than, like, I can't wait for it to come out, dude, or I don't care, there's always George Broussard going, like, oh, you'll see. Well, you know what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I will. Maybe we will all see. I think, yeah. I think we're starting to see some cracks in the facade in the last few months. Yeah. If you've, if you've kept up with any of the comments, he's been because he's always speaking out on message boards and stuff. Because he has that much time, apparently. Apparently. Sure. Yeah. And lately, he hasn't been defending the game quite as hard. Yeah. There, yeah, well. there have been a couple of quotes, like uh, some magazine got to go see the game a few months ago, and they've got him quoted in there being just like, "We at this point, we just want to get the game done. Well, then and, what are you doing? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Don't yell at me. What's 3D Realms uh, doing? Are they 
are they publishing Prey? Are they developing Prey? They're involved. Yeah, they're, that game looks cool. Like that game got killed and and revitalized, and, and, that game and looks, it's coming out that, before Duke Nukem, and that looks awesome. I mean, they did. I wouldn't go that far, but I all do. Right. I will. That game looks awesome to me. Art Bell coming through. Yeah, yeah, Art, yeah, Art yeah. Bell that, is that totally is, in that cool game. Idea. Yeah. But like 3D Realms, like made. I think they made a huge chunk of money. I mean, obviously they made a ton of money off Duke Nukem, but then they they made like a really good sizable chunk of cash off of Max Payne. Yeah, they helped somehow with the development of that right. game. So, you know, then they found Remedy and Finder's Fee, whatever, whatever. So, you know, they, they've got no problem with money. They've been self-funding it. So, you know, yeah, like like George Broussard says, they're not going to rush it now. And really, why bother? All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. We'll learn more about Duke Nukem Forever as its release date of December no, 31st <laughs> approaches. It's coming out this year. Stop saying that. Is that, that. Is that what we just lying. came up to? Is that the game's coming out this year? Yeah, totally. It totally yes. <laughs> it, will come, out, it will come out on December 31st. Right, actually, it's a Wii launch game, October 18th. Mm, cool. Let's move on with our fistful of craziness. And then in 2011, a mere five years after that was recorded... Duke Nukem Forever emerged kicking and screaming from Gearbox software. And you get to smear shit all over the walls. So, yeah, totally worth the wait. So that's 1997 through to 2011. 14 years. But that development time has nothing on The Thief and the Cobbler. According to composer Howard Blake, Blake insisted to Williams that while uh, he thought the footage was excellent, he needed to structure the film and footage into a three-act plot. The Shah family had a bookkeeper that wasn't keeping track of the studio's accounting, so Williams felt that producer Omar Shah had been embezzling financing from the studio for his own purpose. As a result, Williams had a falling out with the Shah family. Paramount withdrew the deal that they'd been negotiating. Williams was forced to abandon Nasruddin as the Shah family took the rights of Williams' illustrations. However, the Shah family allowed Williams to keep characters he designed for the books and the movie, including a thief character that was Williams' favourite. So that thief ended up in the final movie. So basically, it started with the Shah family, who from the sounds of it kind of made everything much more complicated. You're talking about Arabian folklore here. You don't need to do anything to do with the books. You really just need to say to the Shah family, look, you guys have inspired me. I want to go off and do my own Arabian folklore film. You know, if you'd like to sort of be part of it, that's cool. But 50%, are you kidding me? That that should never even, even have been on the table. That's crazy. The You know, just like, there were, there were versions of the Arabian Nights published in Victorian times. You don't necessarily need these ladies' versions of it. You know, I remember from Dracula. Can a man and a woman really do that? I did, just last night. Fibber, you did not. Sorry, just Dracula. Awesome film. You should totally watch that. Anyway, she's giving me a face here. <laughs> I just think your Winona Ryder voice is quite impressive. That's all. It is. However, the Shah family allowed Williams to keep the camera. Blah, 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 blah. Prolonged production, 1972 to 1978. Williams commissioned a new script from Howard Blake, who he wrote a treatment called Tin Tack in 1973. So what's that? His fourth name? Oh, The Amazing Nasruddin, The Majestic Fool. And then just Nasruddin. And now it's uh, Tin Tack, so that's the fourth name, in 1973, so nine years after they started. Blake's treatment incorporated a clumsy cobbler named Tack and retained Williams' thief character from Nasruddin. So basically, he created the thief for the books, but they weren't part of the original books. But I mean, that's that would have been a good thing to go for for them in the first place. Just like I love these books, you know, I love I love this setting. I want to go and do my own Arabian Nights type thing. 
you know, do you want to be part of this project? Mm. Well, they, I mean, rather the than being beholden things, to them. From the sounds of things, they let him take the characters that he designed. Yeah. It was just the characters that he'd illustrated that they'd created. Mm. Um, they said he couldn't. But that's not like, yeah, he could just have come up with his own hero in a few days. You know, you just you just start sculpting someone people can relate to, a Peter Parker type, and ultimately with the cobbler, he was pretty pretty much there. Mm. You know, <clears throat> but Howard Blake came up with that guy from the sounds of things. So you should have met Blake nine years previously, and they should have just not bothered about the Shah family. But I, even if they'd done, even if that had been the case from the word go, there still would have been problems. Mm. Well, um, it was yeah. I mean, he was working for them, illustrating the books. Yeah. That's where he got the ideas from. Anyway, while the story's focus on tone was shifted and simplified, William's character from Nazarudin included a sleepy king and an evil vizier, originally named Anwar, all moved over to Tin Tack. Many scenes that did not include Nazarudin himself were also retained. Throughout the 70s, Williams would further rewrite the script with Margaret French, his wife at the time. While Williams would continue to simplify the dialogue, the script would not change structurally. That, again, is a problem. The structure of this film is all over the place. Mm. Williams later began promising his new film as a 100-minute Panavision animated epic feature film with a hand-drawn cast of thousands. Them's mighty fighting words. They're they're Bakshi levels of boasting. The characters were renamed at this point. Zigzag speaks mostly in rhyme throughout the entire film. That's the Vizier, the Jafar type. While the other characters, with the exception of the Thief and Tack, who are mute, speak normally. Richard Williams stated that he did not intend to follow the Disney route with his film. Right, this was the bit that pissed me off when I got to it. In 1972, Disney had done several really solid stories. I mean, like, some of them... Like, Fantasia obviously doesn't have a particularly fantastic story, but Pinocchio's got a really straightforward story. Dumbo's got a really great story. Even Snow White, I mean, I've, I've, I've ripped into it in the past. It's pretty straightforward, you know, like, you know, girl gets harassed, then lost, then befriends some short man, you know. Like, there's lovable, immediately identifiable characters. Like, like, not wanting to do Disney, you have to really have something very good if you're going to make an animated film that's not like Disney, and you have to have, like, a I'm trying to think of who, who like, no one else was doing animated films at the time who weren't Disney. That was, we've, we've covered this in the uh, the Disney series. Um, it wasn't until Don Bluth split off on his own that, uh, I mean, there, there were, of course, animated films produced, but no other powerhouse studios. There was no DreamWorks. There was no Illumination. There was no Blue Sky Studios or... Who did Bakshi's... That was basically the Saul Zantz company, Warner Brothers, and Bakshi's own in-house studio. Which is basically just him with some paint. Um, Richard Williams stated that he did not intend to follow the Disney route with his film. He went on to state that the film would be the first animated film with a real plot that locks together like a detective story at the end. Spoiler warning, it it doesn't. And that, with its two mute main characters, Thief was essentially a silent movie with a lot of sound. Brilliant. Silent comedies like films from Charlie Chaplin and Harry Langdon were already an inspiration on Nasrudin and carried over to the new film. At no point did anyone actually say, the thief is basically Wiley e. Coyote. You know, he's talking about silent movies. It's Looney Tunes for the best bits. 
Tack was modelled after said silent film stars. British illustrator Errol Lacane created inspirational paintings and backgrounds setting the style for the film during the decades that the film was being made. I, those, I know those words, but that sentence doesn't make sense. During the decades that the film was being made, the characters were redesigned several times and scenes were reanimated. Test animation of Princess Yum Yum as featured in the released versions were traced from the live-action film Mukadad Yep, not saying that one. 3 p.m., President Trump is going to meet with the leader from Central Asia. President... Oh, boy. Um... <laughs> oh, Mukadar Kasikander. Thank you. Her design was slightly changed later in production. In William's early drafts, the climaxing... I just have a small question. Mm-hmm. This was in production for decades. Yes. Characters were redesigned several times. Yes. No one at any point said, Yum Yum is a daft name for the princess. Has anybody got another one that we could use? Decades, folks. Decades. Princess Yum Yum. The climax included a final battle with Zigzag after the collapse of the war machine. Oh, there's a war machine. When he conjures a larger-than-life oriental dragon. That didn't happen. Only for Tack to reveal it to be nothing more than an inflatable balloon. Although there were some production designs of the scene with the oriental dragon, it was never made, as it was found to be too difficult to animate. The robot crab, however, that was fine. That's one of the more impressive parts of the film, this giant war machine thing. You know, that wasn't too difficult to animate. How much more difficult is an oriental dragon that's actually an inflatable Well, the robot thing that, like, part of the animation style is a very, like, symmetrical, mechanical kind of... uh, the, The lattice work of of lines intersecting on screen. They do a lot with perspective. And it's difficult to really say without you being able to see, but... um, it it would be much easier to draw something very mechanical with straight lines than it would be to draw something very organic. Yeah? Mm-hmm. At least yeah. something that moved that was very organic and detailed. Yeah. You're right about there being a lot that they do with lines, actually. There's all of the, um, the Escher-type uh, visual stuff. Hmm. And um, tax... Cat's Cradle that he does with his thread as well, yeah. where he creates all sorts of different pictures. Yeah. In 1974, a recession forced... This is 10 years after they be, it began. A recession forced the studio to focus primarily on various TV commercials, TV special, and the feature film title assignments, leaving Williams' movie to be worked on as a side project. So before it was being worked on full-time, eh? For a short period, just from 72 the to beginning 74. of this, I would say. Okay, yeah. so two years. Yeah. You'd think that 40 animators working flat out could make... Year, you would. Yeah, come on. Se- 70 minutes, that's all you basically need to... I mean, it, obviously it takes forever to animate, but you could write a script in a few weeks. Come on, dude. Because Williams had no money uh, uh, to have a full team working on the film, and due to the film being a giant epic production dragging for de- dragged for decades, Ken Harris was still the chief animator on the film as he had been since Nasruddin, and Williams would assign him sequences while he was supervising production on commercials. To save money, scenes were kept in pencil stage without putting it in colour, as advised by Richard Pudum. Uh, that, that basically, um, he's describing moving storyboards, but very much more uh, detailed and intricate. So, like, um, the, the Disney do this, you know, back in the uh, 90s, at least. They're, they're sort of a very rough version. And that, that makes sense, basically. You get your film working in rough version, and then you do your, your better pass on it, and then you make it best. Um, and this is someone who hasn't worked in animation, but knows quite a lot about it. 
as advised by Richard Purden. Work on paper, don't put it in colour, don't spend on special effects, don't do camera work, tracing or painting, just do rough drawings. Williams was planning to later finish these sequences when the financing would come in. Williams was learning the art of animation himself during the production of this film before... That's the thing. So, hang on, I thought he was already an animator. Apparently not. 1964, Richard Williams, oh. a Canadian animator. Okay, Williams was more f- was further learning the art of animation uh, during the production of this film. Before the thief had his animation during the sixties, typically featured stylized designs in the vein of UPA animated shorts. Williams hired veteran animator, uh, animators from the golden age of animation, such as Art Babbitt, Emery Hawkins, and Grim Natwick, to work in his studio in London and help teach him and his staff. Williams learned also from Milt Carl, Frank Thomas. Ollie Johnston and Ken Anderson at Disney. These are the one, two, three, four remaining nine old men at this stage uh, to whom he made yearly visits. So basically he would make pilgrimages to Disney to learn more from the masters and to show off his wares. And then to come home and say, oh, we don't want to do that Disney shit. It does seem a bit like... Well, maybe he didn't mean it in quite such a bad way, but... He did not intend to follow the Disney route with this film. It's the first animated film with a real plot that locks together. Well, the real plot really is kind of a that fuck you a, to yeah, Disney. It kind of suggests that Disney films don't have real plots. Tell that to the... Well, I suppose The Rescuers wasn't released at that point. 101 Dalmatians yeah. was out by this point. That's yeah. got a plot. Jungle Book was out at this point. That's got a plot. Ugh. Anyway. Williams would later pass uh, their knowledge to a new generation of animators. So he was kind of a conduit there. Uh, Williams uh, also allowed animators like Natwick and Babbitt to work on the studio assignments, such as the 1977 feature Raggedy Ann and Andy, A Musical Adventure. The mad, holy old witch was designed as a caricature of animator Grim Natwick, by whom she was animated. After Natwick died, Williams would animate the witch himself. As years passed, the project became more ambitious. Williams said that the idea... Because, like, just getting it done with what you can and just, you know, seeing it through to the end is not preferable to just increasing the scope, increasing the scale, increasing your boast of how incredible this thing's going to be. Increasing, not even, like, in the boast, like, it's not even like he's telling all these people it's going to be great and it's not. Just in his own mind, he could never be, sa- he could never be satisfied with what this was going to be. There really is no reason why not, Williams envisioned... Hang on. Williams said that the idea is to make the best animated film that has ever been made. So he was going around saying that to people. People are so kind about this man. I don't understand why. This is not a nanar, as as films go. there There are too many great little bits in it. Too many great little sequences. Like I said, the chase sequence is fantastic. These sort of psychedelic tripped out, like checkerboard running. There's bits where they're... Um, running the, the the cobbler is chasing the thief from the left to the right, and they're running along uh, two corridors. And it, but it appears to be just two straight lines, and then the cobbler slams into a wall you didn't see was there because it's Escher. And then they run onto like a stack of squares and then fall downwards because that stack of squares represents descending floors. It's really quite fun and clever, and there are too many great bits for it to be a nanar because nanar. Pretty much everything is rubbish. Mm. Even the, you know, like music, 
all the acting's bad, all the dialogue's bad, every choice is bad. There are some good choices in here, but they are buried beneath so much. What this has is the properties of Nanar, most specifically a Captain Ahab director who works against the film. He was the person preventing this from being made, both by his lack of organisation and his over-organisation in the wrong directions. This is not me being spiteful. I'm just looking at this man's crazy amount of work. And, like, he clearly put so much effort into this thing. But the whole thing about work smarter, not harder, just never came to him. I like getting projects started, pushing forwards, and finishing them. But, you know, it almost seems like he was working on a piece of art that if it was ever actually truly done, he would be done himself. He, it would almost be that you would have to have it taken away from you. So it's like that bit in Six Degrees of Separation. This is what I dreamt. I didn't dream so much as realize this. I feel so close to the paintings. I'm not just selling like pieces of meat. And I remembered why I loved paintings in the first place, what had got me into this. I thought, dreamt, remembered how easy it is for a painter to lose a painting. He paints and paints, works on a canvas for months, and then one day he loses it, loses the structure, loses the sense of it. You lose the painting. I remember asking my kid's second grade teacher, why are all your students geniuses? Look at the first grade, blotches of green and black, the third grade, camouflage. But your grade, the second grade, Matisse is everyone. You've made my child a Matisse. Let me study with you. Let me into the second grade. What is your secret? I don't have any secret. I just know when to take their drawings away from them. What Williams really needed was somebody over his shoulder going, right, we need a timescale here, we need a script here, and then when we get to this stage, we have to be done. Not in an unkind way, but just in a motivate you, and we will get it done, and I will, we will be done, and we'll take this one away, and we will give it to people, and they will either love it, or they won't. And if they don't, you either try again, or you don't, but it's done not spending 32 years of your life until you are made to finish. Williams said that the idea is to make the best animated film that has ever been made. There really is no reason why not. There, there are reasons why not. You don't have the funding. You don't have the staff that are dedicated that much. You, don't, you don't, clearly can't put in hours to output. You don't have the time. You don't have the overview. <coughs> and your vision keeps changing. Williams envisioned the film to feature very detailed and complex animation, the likes he thought that no other studio would ever attempt to achieve. Additionally, much of the film's animation would be photographed on ones, meaning that the animation runs at a full 24 frames per second, as opposed to the more common animation on twos at 12 frames per second. I can see why people are willing to be so generous in terms of, of what he was trying to achieve. Oh, his ambition is fantastic. Yeah, and it, it obviously comes from a place of, of wanting to advance the, the 
art form and you know thinking that he was the only person who could do it but there's a danger in that (laughs) and there's a danger in being sort of an artist and a perfectionist and wanting everything to be better than everything that came before it I mean especially since he from the sounds of things he did not have a great deal of experience yeah and I'm totally behind people without experience learning as they go mm. and trying something like this. But ultimately, if once a decade's passed, you need to stop and reevaluate. In fact, I can tell you right now what he lacks, which is one of the a most Black sick- Friday. At Disney, when the project isn't going right, they have a Black Friday and they go, right, what can we salvage? What do we change? What? How do we proceed with this? Okay. Yeah. Not what I was going to say, but okay. Carry on. Um, what he doesn't have, which is is definitely a property of Nanar... Is Walt Disney is, breathing down his neck? He ha- No, no. He has no humility. Yeah. And that's what tends to make a Nanar, is a director or a, a creator who has no humility and does not recognise their own limits. That's the other thing. Is if you're making something on your own, it is probably best to go, let me try to make this as good as I can get it. I will, you know, I will try for a nine. If I get to nine, brilliant. I don't need to get to ten because I literally, I'm just, I have to understand my limits on this one. Mm. Um, but he was trying to go for an eleven. He was trying to go for the greatest animated film ever, and his his reach was far exceeded by his ambition. Gaining financial backing looking up in 1978 to 1988 it's not looking up in 1978 a Saudi Arabian prince Mohammed bin Fasil al Saud became interested in the thief and agreed it was just called the thief at that point and agreed to fund a 10 minute test sequence with a budget of $100,000 Williams chose the complex penultimate sequence of the thief in the war machine for the test that's sneaky that's clever because basically because once it's made happens, you've, you've got, got your final sequence unless they just demand that it that they basically seize it as your assets and say you're not getting this back until you pay me about 100,000 which the Saudi prince should have done by the way um, the studio missed two deadlines and the scene was completed at the end of 1979 so one year later at least uh, for $250,000 more than twice as much Faisal, despite his positive impressions of the finished scene, backed out of the production because of missed deadlines and budgetary overruns. In other words, you went twice as long as you said you were going to be, and you cost it more than twice as much. Whatever I put in, I'm going to end up putting in twice as much. It's going to take twice as long. This does not look good, guys. If if this was workmen doing your kitchen, this would be entirely unacceptable. Side note, they'd been working on it since 1964. It's now 1978. 14 years in just over one year they managed to do 10 minutes what the flip had they done before in the 1980s but that also by the way like that sequence I believe was in the movie the final movie so um, it's it's good of the prince to not say right well um, I am now a producer on this film I'm not giving you any more money but when it comes out I want my $100,000 back Mm. if that's okay thank you very much and he would be totally within his rights to do that. In the 1980s, Williams put together a 20-minute sample reel of The Thief, which show, he showed to Milt Cull. And when I say 20-minute sample reel, we mean that 10-minute sequence. And in the 1980s, so a good 15 to 16 years since he's been doing it, maybe 10 more minutes worth of footage that they've also done in that 16 years. 
which he showed to Milt Carl, one of the geniuses at Disney, one of the nine old men, friend, and one of William's animation mentors at Skywalker Ranch in Marine County. Star Wars producer Gary Kurtz even worked with Williams to attempt to get financing in the mid-80s. Kurtz later left The Thief. In 1986, Williams met producer Jake Ebert, who began funding the production through his allied filmmakers company and eventually provided $10 million of the film's $28 million budget. Right, for a start, do they mean that Williams was estimating $20 million and he needed 10 there, or that he was given $10 million and eventually that would run up to $28 million? I don't know. See, this is the thing. It's difficult to tell when people talk about a film's budget. Does that mean just the budget, as in the pre-planned amount it's going to cost, or does it mean what the film actually costs to make? All I can say is, I'm going to do some brief addition here. Um, it cost him $250,000, a quarter of a million, to make 10 minutes worth of film. This film ended up at 70 minutes. You got 10 of that already. That's if we don't count anything you've made so far in the 16 to 20 years you've now spent on this thing. It's more than 20 now. At 86, it's 22 years. If you've made nothing else but that 10 minutes for the Saudi Arabian prince, that means that at roughly 200... And this is for a very expensive sequence as well. 10 minutes of uh, footage by a quarter million. You got six. That's... One and a half million. Where did you get 10 million out of? And where the hell did you get 28 million? That doesn't make any sense. You said $100,000 for a complete 10 minute scene. You overran, you took far too long, you ended up going way over budget. How do you get from $100,000 for 10 minutes to $250,000 to 10 minutes to $400,000 per minute of this film? But uh, let's compare it to Aladdin's budget. Oh, you're kidding me. (laughs) 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 Folks, it's $28 million, precisely. (laughs) Oh my God, this film cost the same as Aladdin. Of course it did. Of course it did. Somebody looked at the Thief and the Cobbler and went, we can do better than that for 28 million. I know we can do better than that for 28 million. God damn it. I know for certain that we, the makers of Beauty and the Beast, can do better than that for 28 million. And it's 90 minutes, so they got an extra 20 minutes Ooh. for free. <laughs> that's all of Robin Williams stuff. <laughs> but I mean, that's the best comparison, actually, if, if it was uh, released in. Let's look at um, a famous Disney flop, shall we? that was released in the 80s, around about the time he was getting funding. The Black Cauldron cost $44 million and only made $21 million. That was a huge failure. The Fox and the Hound cost $12 million, so a damn sight less than half, and it made $63 million. So anyway, Allied's distribution and sales partner Majestic Films began promoting the film in industry trades under the working title Once. So that's another name change. At this time, Ebert's encouraged Williams to make changes to the script. You're... Mm. (laughs) 
A subplot in trolling him now. <laughs> a subplot involving the characters of Princess Mimi, Yum Yum's twin sister, played by uh, Catherine Shell, and Prince Bubba, who had been turned into an ogre and was played by Thick Wilson. Both characters were deleted in some of Grim Natwick's animation of The Witch had to be discarded. Also deleted was Ken Harris's sequence of the brigands dreaming of a biblical temptress. Hmm? Okay. Steven Spielberg saw the footage of the thief and was impressed enough that he and with film director Robert Zemeckis asked Williams to direct the animation of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So this this is what Williams' big thing or that he will be remembered by by the world, if at all. Was you just say, oh, he did Who Framed Roger Rabbit? You go, oh, okay. So basically, all the Roger stuff was was him. That's that's a big achievement. That's what he should be remembered for. This obviously was his life's maniacal dream, <laughs> and you know, it, this is more for animation purists and people who just love animation oddities like us. So Williams agreed in order to get financing for the Thief and the Cobbler and uh, get it finally finished. Roger Rabbit was... See, again, he wanted to get it finished, so that's good. Roger Rabbit was released in 88 and became a blockbuster. Williams won two Oscars for his animation and his contribution to visual effects. Although Roger Rabbit ran over budget before animation production began... I think I'm seeing a pattern here. The success of the film proved that Williams could work within a studio structure and turn out high-quality animation on time and within budget. That suggests that maybe he missed his calling and should actually have just worked for Disney. Mm. You know? Because the the animation in Roger Rabbit is splendid. It's really good. He did a damn good job there. Disney and Spielberg told Williams that in return for doing Roger Rabbit, they would help distribute his film. Even though uh, it was Disney and Spielberg, even though he had basically said, I don't want to do a Disney film, I want to do one with a plot. They didn't hold that against him. Uh, Because basically he had friends at Disney, clearly, the nine old men. And he never asked them, can I have a job, please? This planned, maybe he did. Maybe he was begging them every year. And they said no. I feel like he's David Brent coming into the office with his dog. (laughs) Neil makes me laugh, though, because... You know, it's his interfering. It's his timing. He's going on about he wants some report doing. It's Red Nose Day, you know. Oh, what's more important, you, Neil, with your report, or some starving children? Oh, I don't know. You know, oh, what would Lenny Henry say? I think we know. Imagine him going out of the door on Comic Relief Day and Dawn French is going, where are you going? You haven't done the washing up. You haven't put the rubbish out. Do it yourself. I've got to save some Africans. Now, this plan did not come to pass and Disney put their attention more to its own feature animation because they were rounding up to do the, uh, the 90s renaissance at this point. While Spielberg instead opened a rival feature animation studio in London... Oh, come on, Williams, you can't you can't get a job there. You can't just go, look, Steve, I live there. I work there. Can I get a job in your studio and help make an American tale? An American tale, Five All Goes West. Because of his success, Williams and Warner Brothers negotiated a funding and distribution deal for The Thief and the Cobbler, which included a $25 million marketing budget. Oh, maybe that's why it's $28 million. Maybe it was Maybe it's just $3, 3 million, million for the film it, and $25 million for the marketing. $3 million to make it is much more logical. Yeah, since I basically, uh, we, we worked it out at like if it's going to be... 1.5. 1.5. So three, three million is a more sort of like, you know, we stretch it. I mean, it's still 100% over what it should have cost. Yeah, but, but that's his track record so far. Just so it would appear. Just think of a number, now double it. Now add a bit more, and that's what Williams can now do. Now stick $25 million on for marketing. And at time, uh, you may not live to see the end of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> How old are you right now? 50. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be lucky if you live to see me sign the damn contract. 
Oh, this is terrible because he's gonna die like now, and it's gonna we're gonna sound dreadfully horrible about him. I I, I kind of admire him. And he's, like I say, he's got this Captain Ahab, we're going to do this. I'm going to make the, yeah, he got it made. I'm going to make the best animated film of all time. It's just, this is fascinating as well, though. Isn't this fascinating, folks? Just this, this, like, I'd never heard of this before. It's mental. Anyway. uh, William's current wife, Imogen Sutton, second wife. I think it wasn't the same person we mentioned before. No. Suggested uh, him suggested him to finance the thief with European backers, citing his appreciation of foreign films. You like foreign films? Get European backing. Richard insisted that he could produce a film. He could produce a film with a major studio. Williams and Warner's signed a negative pickup deal in late 1988. There's a clicky thing on negative pickup deal. Let's find out what that is. I'm assuming it's if it loses money, you pay us for everything. It's a contract entered into by an independent producer and movie studio wherein the studio agrees to purchase the movie from the producer at a given date and for a fixed sum, depending on whether the studio pays part or all of the cost of the film. The studio will receive a domestic international DVD, Blu-ray, and all rights to the film, TV rights to the film, with net profits split between the producer and the studio. Okay. So basically, they bought it from him in late 88. And Williams also got some financial... So basically, fresh on the heels of Roger Rabbit, he was like, hey, I got this animated movie. You want it, Warner Brothers? You can say from the animator... Of Roger Rabbit, and they did. Actually, it wasn't Warner Brothers, but we'll cut to that in a bit. And Williams also got some financial aid from Japanese investors. <laughs> a visit from a Japanese businessman. I, this guy's life is a sitcom. I mean, obviously, in the reality would have been much more dramatic, but it just—I feel like I could just make a film about the making of this film. There is actually a film about the making of this film. It's called Persistence of Vision, and it's a documentary. What I meant just there was literally make a drama film about the making of this film, like Ed Wood was about making Glenn or Glenda and Plan 9 from Outer Space. You just need an actor willing to go full Citizen Kane on this one and age up from mid-20s to late-60s. Williams also got some financial aid from Japanese investors... Williams himself later stated, in hindsight, we should have just gone to Europe, take another five years, make it on our own, and then go to a distributor and get people to find it as a novelty. In hindsight? In hindsight? He was planning to make it on his own and take another five years. How long had he been making it on his own and not getting it finished up until this point? What made him think I can literally five tell years you. we're going to do it? I can literally tell you. It was 24 years. 24, right, okay. So really what he was proposing was go to Europe, take another 24 years. <laughs> not not get it out. It now! <laughs> get people who find it, and it's a novelty if you find it. Production, asterisk, under Warner Brothers, 1989 to 1992. With the new funding, the film finally got into full production. In 1989, Williams scoured the art schools of Europe and Canada to find talented artists. Again, that conjures up so much imagery. I'm thinking kidnapping here. It was at this point with almost all of the original... I said art schools of Europe. I'm thinking Dave Lister. It was at this point with almost all of the original animators either dead or having long since moved on to other projects. I shouldn't laugh at death, but it just shows the comical span of years this thing took. It like, it's like, well, like, like he put his head around the door of the office for the first time in ages and was like, "What happened to Ollie? 
Ollie's dead. <laughs> oh, God. I don't think he actually had Ollie Johnston an animated for him. An but. animation room full of drawing boards and skeletons. <laughs> I've worked my fingers to the bone. This is the reason that Guillermo del Toro gets out quick if things are taking too long. <laughs> and can you blame him? They call me quick like del Toro. <laughs> It was at this point, with almost all the original animated to see the dead or having lots of its moved on to other projects, that full-scale production on the film began, mostly with a new younger team of animators, including William's own son, Alexander Williams, who see, is, again, important to this project, has his own Wikipedia page. Okay. I was just going to say, though, this is the trick. If you can't get other people to work for you, get your kids on board. Yes. But at the same time, <laughs> Alexander Williams is very passionate about his father's work, really cares about this film to this day. Um, so it's it's this, in the same way that Lyra has sort of occasionally asked me, Daddy, could you write down roughly what's going to happen in New Century? That way, if you die, I can continue the book series. Because I've, you know, fleetingly said, I really hope I get to finish this stuff. Um but uh, like I, I love the idea of um, kids actually caring that much about their parents' work and also passing the torch. That's a big deal. Mm. Except Christopher Tolkien, who cares enough to sit on it. Yeah, Christopher Tolkien's like, no, it's my torch! <laughs> and like sucking on it. In a 1988 interview with Jerry Beck, William stated that he had two and a half hours of pencil tests for The Thief and he had not storyboarded the film. It's been 26 years. You haven't storyboarded the film yet. Why had he not storyboarded the film, Alex? Because he didn't have a script. He had not storyboarded the film as he found such a method too controlling. I'm holding my temples here. Mm. Do you know what film had lots of storyboards? And seemed impossible, but they did it anyway because of the storyboards. All sorts of films that get finished in less than 24 years. No, I'm thinking of an impossible-to-make film. Lord of the Rings trilogy. That was made on its storyboards. Basically, they knew what they had to shoot on that day because they had pictures of it. I cannot emphasise enough the importance of storyboards when you're doing very visual stuff. Mm. What he wanted to do was make it up as he went along. What he needed to do was employ a person who was quick and could do storyboards and basically talk them through a page of the script a day for 70 days and just have them draw every frame in rough and go and present a ring binder. This is the Thief and the Cobbler. 70 days. It's just over two months of your time. Out of... 26 years. Jesus Christ. I mean, two and a half hours of pencil tests. What did he have his animators doing? Did he just basically say to them, right, draw everything in the world and then I'll decide what I want in the Did film. he get infinite monkeys with infinite pencils? <laughs> oh, my God. That's what the 28 million was for. Oh, God. Anyway, he found it too controlling. Vincent Price, Vincent Price, originally recorded his dialogue from 1967 to 73, over five years, uh, uh, sorry, over six years. That's a lot to ask of your voice actors. And I would know, Williams, but, but like, Vincent Price had to record like 25 minutes worth of dialogue in six years. 
Williams recorded further dialogue with Price for the 1990 production, but Price's age and illness meant some lines remained unfinished. Vincent Price died 1993, but he was ill in 1990. Williams had before experimented with shots animated by hand to move in three dimensions with characters, including several shots in Roger Rabbit's opening sequence with the thief. When Roger is rushing around the kitchen... Mm. That's, Sometimes you see him coming towards yeah, the camera. Or that, I do recognise those kind of shots in the film with the, the thief, who is a very physical comedian-type character. With the thief, Williams began planning several sequences to feature greater use of this animation technique, including Tack and the Thief's palace chase which was achieved without computer-generated imagery. So that wasn't, that wasn't done in the 60s. It looks like it was, but it was done in, like, 1990-ish. That's wrong. With Yellow Submarine being re-released on video cassette at that point, you know? It, it looks so old it looks so 60s I'm, I'm, I'm giving it like you know so well they must have animated this stuff in the 60s no it was late 80s according to rumors williams approached the thief with a live action point of view coming off of roger rabbit did he roger wasn't live action like like roger behaved exactly like a tune you got it right there no but it's specifically what he says in the next line williams was creating extra footage and extended sequences to trim down later that that he would have edited down the work print he later assembled really is that line he's thinking of it in terms of get as much material as you can and then i'll decide what bits i want to put together you can't do that with animation story you're asking people to work on stuff that may never get used it makes so much more sense from an animation point of view there's there's like a sequence where the thief like pole vaults up to a tower to get three golden balls and it's painful and it takes three or four passes at it and all it needed was one or like two where he just goes up and then like Wiley Coyote reaches out one foot and then just this fantastic sort of physical comedy of I'm not going to make this one and then he plummets down that's basically what happens but it's that's done the in first a re- one. yeah that's the first one there are four but it's done in a really kind of like they just it just happens it they don't really take that disney time to really like put the physicality into the actions or indeed the chuck jones the looney tunes that just that that physical expression into the characters to make them just like this is why you get the storyboards and you only give them that to do the amount of stuff that really gets cut out of disney in the end and do- doesn't get used that got nearly fully animated is very small mm. in the end if they have to cut a whole sequence, that costs them a lot. Also, if your animators know that that's the way you're working, how demotivating has it got to be being given these sequences to work on, knowing perfectly well that 75% of what you do is going to get cut? Warner Brothers had also signed a deal with the Completion Bond Company. To ensure the studio would be given a finished film. If not, they would finish The Thief under their management. Which consisted of what? Guys stood in the doorway with hammers. Yeah. (laughs) Nasty business. Animation. Accidents do happen. Ink gets spilled. Williams, dedicated but pressured, was taking his time to ensure sequences would look perfect. What did I say? What did I say? Animators were working overtime, sometimes 60 hours a week required to get the film done. After all that time you took, they're crunching it at the end, hurting people. 
While Williams encouraged the best out of people, discipline was harsh and animators were frequently fired. He fired hundreds of people. There's a list as long as your arm of people being fired by Dick. It was a regular event, cameraman John Leatherbarrow. That's a great name, by the way. John Leatherbarrow recalls. There was one guy who got fired on the doorstep. Williams was just like, he just sort of turned up, you're fired! I didn't even, I'm just, I'm just here to deliver your mail. Oh, you're here to deliver mail? You can do some voice work. <laughs> Williams was just as hard on himself. He was the first person in the morning and the last one out at night. See, that's what I mean. Like, he is going to push himself as hard, but he's one of those people like Kathy Bates in uh, The Office, mm -hmm. who's like, you know, everyone needs to leave because it's well past leaving time. And she's like, sure, if you feel like you've done a hard day's work, and then like looks at you, you know, Okay, I guess I'll sit back down again. But here's the problem. If you're the first person in in the morning and the last one out at night, you're constantly firing people, you're under pressure because you've been working on this thing for most of your working career and yeah. it's still not done, you're not making the clearest of decisions. And you sure as hell aren't enjoying it. Yeah. Ugh, I, I hope he was being fulfilled in some capacity, but... But it, it bugs me when people say, oh, yeah, but he's just as hard on himself as he is on everybody else. He's the first person in the morning. He's the last one out. Maybe That's he not shouldn't a good thing. be quite as hard on Tell himself. Tell him to take a damn break. Take a break. You know I have to get my plan through Congress. Play with us for the summer. Let's go upstairs. I lose my job if we don't get this plan through Congress. Recalls animator Roger Vizard. Funders pressured Williams to make finished scenes of the main characters for a marketing trailer as is tradition with movies. The final designs were made for the characters at this time. Jesus. You didn't do final designs for the characters until they needed the trailer? This is, we're pushing 30 years at this point, and they've only just done final designs for the characters. My God. My God. This is... This is amazing. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this, people. Because it is. It's like we opened up the Ark of the Covenant here. And like rather than Don't angels of death coming out, it's like so much pointless work <laughs> was done. The worst thing is no one knows this film exists. I know. All this work I know. for all this Animators, time. it would appear, know yeah. this film exists. It's like, it's like a cautionary tale. Oh, yeah? You don't want to make one of those <laughs> thieves or cobblers. Finish your storyboards, otherwise Richard Williams the thief and the cobbler will come and get you in the night. <laughs> get your characters drawn. Maybe in the early 60s. Get your characters. I mean, it's a small thing. But if you're doing an Arabian Nights... Have a character yes. and draw them. You it's ask. an animated film. Don't do a thing with a giant machine. You need a character. You ask where we have such a rigid timetable schedule when we're working with artists. Oh, oh my sweet summer child. <laughs> Let me show you why we have such a strict timetable schedule. I've got to say, he'll never hear this, probably, but I am so lucky with Antonio. I ask him... For this, with a description, he produces the character. He may not find it straight away. There may be problems with the way he's drawn it, but we work on the details. We go back and forth. He gives his insight. I give my suggestions, and we find the character between us. It's, it's that simple. You get an efficient, motivated, enthusiastic, gifted, 
artist. In you, less than 30 years. Less than 30 years. You set them to work. You keep giving them stuff and just gold comes out. It's it's wonderful. <clears throat> oh, God. Oh, it's not even out yet. It's not even been released. The film was not finished. Friggin' surprise me. By a 1991 <laughs> oh, deadline. I'm about to have a heart attack and die from that surprise. The film was not finished by a 1991 deadline that Warner Brothers originally imposed on Williams that should have been given to him long beforehand. The film had approximately 10 to 15 minutes of screen time to complete. Uh, So that means that they're done 55 minutes. See, we bitch about studios all the time, but... In this their, case, their purpose is. is in this there. case, handing out deadlines is sometimes important to get the artists in shape. And as we, like we have found throughout the '90s, Disney's mm. that these cold-hearted money men and they're thinking about um, artist products, working in conjunction with artists, working their balls off, and with the money flying in, can make some wonderful films with the right chaotic balance. Not in this case. <sighs> the film had 10 to 15 minutes of screen time to complete, which at Williams' rate was estimated to take a tight six months or longer. No, at Williams' rate, it's going to take another flipping decade or two. <sighs> From Warner Brothers' perspective, the animation department at the studio had put their enthusiasm towards high-quality television animation, but had little confidence towards backing feature animation. Warner Brothers had already released, so Warner... That would be like Animaniacs, wouldn't it? Mm. Animaniacs, Tiny Toons. Warner Brothers had already released Nutcracker Prince, a Canadian-produced animated film in, in 1990, to almost no promotion. Warner's head of animation, Jean McCurdy, didn't know anything about animation. She admitted as to an artist that, I don't know nothing about no animation. She's the head of animation. Hold on, hold on. Admitted to an artist that he had, don't read ahead and then point to things that are ahead. No, 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 you, it's the... what you just read. Hang on. She's the head of animation and she doesn't know anything about animation. Oh my God, I can't believe it. I missed that while I was reading it. Warn. <clears throat> I'll say that again because those words have no meaning. <laughs> Warner's head of animation, Gene McCurdy, didn't know anything about animation. Can we see why there were problems? Even at this late stage. As she admitted to an artist that worked for Williams while she was seeing footage of The Thief, another animator working in Warner Brothers salvaged almost 40 minutes of 35mm dailies footage from McCurdy's trash. <sighs> she just chucked it in the trash. Meanwhile, Walt Disney feature animation had begun work on Aladdin, a film which bore striking resemblance in story, style and character to The Thief and the Cobbler. For example, the character Zigzag from The Thief shares many physical characteristics with both Aladdin's villain Jafar and its genie, as animated by Williams uh, by Williams studio alumnus Andreas Deha and Eric Goldberg. So both of them had worked for him. Oh, seriously? Okay, I did not know that Dehar and Goldberg... Dehar, who is Jafar. <coughs> Gold is a goddamn genius. Goldberg, who... I was going to say who is Jafar. I mean, like, he characterised him, but Andreas Dehar might be quite a bit Jafar, actually, looking at him and seeing how he talks and, and speaks. Um, and Eric Goldberg, uh, although he actually looks more like the Sultan, is, uh, in fact, um, yeah, the, the everything behind the genie, aside from the voice... So, yeah, I think basically what actually happened there was Williams took The Thief and the Cobbler around Disney so much that all the animators in the studio were very aware of the work. And eventually someone said, well, there's an Arabian Nights thing on the table. You got any ideas? 
And then Andreas Dehart and Eric Goldberg slowly put their hands up. We got some ideas. <laughs> just, just click on Andreas Dehart. I'm just curious as to whether it says... Scroll up. No, it doesn't. I was just wondering whether it might mention that he worked for Williams and one of the people that got fired. Maybe, in all seriousness, if Williams fired these guys and they took it to Disney and made a film so wonderful that it will never be forgotten, fair play. Fair play at this stage. Basically, it's like if Captain Ahab is teaching his whaling secrets to the crew, and then he throws two of them overboard in a lifeboat, and then they get picked up by another whaling ship, you'd be damn certain that they're going to whale the best. So, it could be argued then, that if this hadn't had such a troubled production... Aladdin might have been very different. It would probably exist, but in a very different form. Mm. So, ultimately, if you guys love Aladdin, (laughs) Williams would like to say... You're welcome. (laughs) So basically what we're saying is, in the grand scheme of things, Aladdin is Arnold Schwarzenegger and the thief and the cobbler is Danny DeVito. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that Aladdin had to go back in time to kill the thief and the cobbler. (laughs) No. The Completion Board Company asked television animation producer Fred Calvert to do a detailed analysis of the production status. Again, a just request when you're putting money into this thing. He had already travelled to Williams' London studio several times to check on the progress of the film, and his conclusion was that Williams was woefully behind schedule and way over budget. You don't (laughs) flippin' say. So Fred Calvert, then, is the head man in charge of state and the bleeding obvious. (laughs) Can we get you a mastermind, Sybil? Williams did indeed have a script. He has a script... (laughs) Oh, he has a script for this film that should have come out last month. (laughs) God. Last month? According to Calvert, but he wasn't following it faithfully. People from the Completion Bond Company and Calvert were visiting the studio more often towards the end. Williams was giving dailies of sequences that were finished or scrapped since the 1980s, hoping to give an indication of progress to Warner Brothers. So, in other words, he was lying. It's it's another... He was embroidering the truth (laughs) with old dailies. Oh yeah, we did such great dailies. So I have the best dailies. <laughs> That's a terrible comparison. He's a dated nineteen eighty seven. That's a terrible comparison. I would not call him like that. He's a dreamer, whereas that man is not. Williams was asked to show the investors a rough copy of the film with the remaining scenes filled in with storyboards. We're screwed, guys! <laughs> he wants storyboards. He finally do some storyboards in order to establish the film's n n Sorry, I've not seen that word so far. It's been it's been over 30 years and the word narrative has not come up yet. Williams had avoided storyboards up to this point. I know, but within 2 weeks he had done what the investors had asked. They must have threatened him with something really severe. <laughs> like only death is going to cut it at this point. It's a bootable offense. Williams made a work print which combined finish basically they must have said you either give us this or you're off the project and we'll get someone else in to finish this film. Mm. Well, Richard Lester, you, basically. Yeah. Williams made a work print with combined finished footage, pencil tests, storyboards and movements from the symphonic suite Scheherazade. Scheherazade, as in... Well, Alibaba had them 40 feet. Scheherazade had a thousand tales. 
master you in luck cause up your sleeves you got a brand of magic never fails to cover the 10 to 15 minutes left to finish animators found out that they had completed more than enough footage for an 85 minute feature but they had yet to finish certain sequences involving the central story Ugh. Mm. In May 13th, 1992, this rough version of the film was shown to Warner Brothers and was not well received. During the screening, the penultimate reel of the film was missing, which did not help matters. The studio lost confidence and backed off the project. The completion co bond company seized control of the film, ousting Williams from the project. <laughs> to put it in perspective, folks, I've just finished The Princess Thieves. If I had started The Princess Thieves aged four, and I still had not finished The Princess Thieves, you guys could be forgiven for going, you know what, we are no longer interested. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, despite the mammoth complexity of an audio project of that size, it's not the same thing as an animated project of that size. Mm. Yeah. But considering how many people are working on this, and how much money was going into this, I'd say it more than evens out. He is he would be expected to come up with the goods, including a treatment, a script, a storyboarded version of the film, a rough cut of the film, a better cut of the film, a final cut of the film. Yes. Those things in that order can be done in about even with a small company, six years. At the very least, something to show them that they've been funding something other than your rent for well, the last God knows Basically, if you've got a certain amount of people working round the clock, unless they're working too hard, as long as they're working the right amount, mm. they need to be coming up with something. Yeah. It sounds like he gave so many people so much pointless busy work, none of which ended up in the final film, or so little. It literally couldn't. There would be hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of rubbish that couldn't be in there. Or hours and hours of brilliance that didn't end up in there. It's baffling. What were they doing? Anyway. In May 13th, 1992, before Aladdin came out in November, this rough version of the film was shown to Warner Brothers and was not well received, you don't say. During the screening, the penultimate reel of the film was missing, which did not help matters. The studio lost confidence and backed out of the project. I don't freaking blame them. The completion board company seized control of the film, ousting Williams from the project. Jake Eberts, who at this point was an executive producer, also abandoned the project. Additionally, according to Richard Williams himself, the production had lost a source of funding when a Japanese investors pulled out due to recession following the Japanese asset price bubble. Fans cite this decision as an example of a trend of animated films being tampered with by studio executives. See, I'm seeing Williams right now as like a Michael Scott figure. Like a man who's just got these incredible ambitions, but just doesn't have the way to, like, he like he can't see those through to the end. And I declare bankruptcy! Hey, I just wanted you to know that you can't just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen. I didn't say it, I declared it. Still, that's, that's not anything. As soon as they meet reality, they just... And he's got all of these fears and weaknesses, and he's he's kind of adorable, but he's he's also got, like, the Dwight Schrute, it-must-be-perfect thing going on. Mm. It's He's kind of amazing. What is my perfect crime? 
I break into Tiffany's at midnight. Do I go for the vault? No, I go for the chandelier. It's priceless. As I'm taking it down, a woman catches me. She tells me to stop. It's her father's business. She's Tiffany. I say no. We make love all night. In the morning, the cops come and I escape in one of their uniforms. I tell her to meet me in Mexico, but I go to Canada. I don't trust her. Besides, I like the cold. Thirty years later, I get a postcard. I have a son, and he's the chief of police. This is where the story gets interesting. I tell Tiffany to meet me in Paris by the Trocadero. She's been waiting for me all these years. She's never taken another lover. I don't care. I don't show up. I go to Berlin. That's where I stash the chandelier. Production under Fred Calvert, 1992 to 1993. Sue Shakespeare of Creative Capers Entertainment, which, by the way, sounds like a very, very low-rent, straight-to-video cartoon VHS production company. It sounds like the people who made Rent-A-Ghost, frankly. Let's see who Creative Capers are. Director video, Sweetsville, Bionicle Mask of Light, Bionicle 2 Legends of Metri New, Bionicle 3 Web of Shadows, Smallsville Legend of Kara and the Chronicles of Krypton. Films, a CGI game sequence in the 1996 live-action 101 Dalmatians. The opening sequence of Mr. Magoo, the Leslie Nielsen film. And Fievel's American Tales, that's additional animation, is the Hollywood Cartoon Company. So that sounds like a TV version of of uh, American Tale. They had previously offered to solve story problems with Richard Wood. Imagine that. Imagine like looking at this giant mess he's got and actually knowing how to put together a story and going, Rich... We'll do this, and not for a large amount of money. We will fix the, the story issues with this. Can we help? Oh no, God! We just want to help lend some structure no, to No, your... God, please, no! No! Oh, okay. No! Okay. No! Uh, they suggested to bring in Terry Gilliam to ah! consult. <laughs> and we've broken Sharon, folks. Terry Gilliam, by the way, is a master craftsman in making weird films that people love and are going to attain cult status, but don't make any money. How bad does your track record have to be when they think Terry Gilliam, a man who has spent the vast majority of his life not not making making a Don Don Quixote movie... Would do a better job. I reckon Terry Gilliam could come into the project right now and go, so, 32 years trying to make it, huh? Cracks fingers. I, Flipping amateur. I'm going to get 20 years on you for that one. <laughs> oh, my God. Right, I, I, may I humbly suggest that somebody said that sarcastically. Hey, maybe we could get Terry Gilliam on this one. <laughs> <sighs> Don't, remember, at the time he hadn't made um, the film that Lost in La Mancha was made oh, about. Okay, or he hadn't not made it. <laughs> so what was he doing with Richard Williams? Writing out tips? He's currently not making a third version. <laughs> oh my God! It was going to be John Hurt, who was going to be Don Quixote. Oh, not, not the most recent one, yeah. but I think John Hurt was going to be one of the Don Quixotes. really good. Oh... I made myself sad. (laughs) When life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. Too much sanity may be madness. 
and maddest of all, to see life as it is, and not as it should be. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but I mean, like, imagine just doing the whole film again from scratch, but it's all Monty Python, Terry Gilliam animations. You know what? Better, Better movie! movie. <laughs> it kind of teeters on that on occasion. It anyway. does. When they will fall down that thing, that is like that bit in Holy Grail where that guy is just going down and down the stairs to go outside to the bouncing foot and clouds. Stop that! Stop that! Stop that! Go on! Clear off! Go on! Go away! Go it! Go away! And you! Clear off! Anyway. It's not the foot, is it? It's just the clouds in the uh, sun. Bloody weather. <laughs> Bloody weather. And he proposed to allow, they proposed to allow Williams to finish the film under her supervision. So, Sue Shakespeare. Shakespeare. <clears throat> Williams reportedly agreed to Shakespeare's proposal, but her bid was ultimately rejected by the Completion Board Company. The Completion Bond Company sound terrifying. They sound like, uh, like a, a made-up company in a Pixar film in favour of a cheaper one by Fred Calvert. I'm assuming this is basically just like, we have thrown too much money in here. Well, the, the, Terry Gilliam's going to cost 60000 Fred Calvert, six. Yeah. Completion bond company, they sound like insurance. Yeah, yeah. They're not about artistic, they're just about getting the job done. Yeah, they sound like the people they're, who picked yeah. up the food fight. They're in, yes, they found ex sound exactly like it. Calvert was assigned by the completion board company to finish the film as cheaply and quickly as possible. I really didn't want to do it, Calvert said. Well, that's the kind of guy you want, right? But if I didn't do it, it would have been given off to the lowest bidder. And that was me. I was going to say, you were the lowest bidder, dude. I took it as a way to try to preserve something and at least get the thing on the screen and let it be seen. Okay, so that's a little bit altruistic. You see what I mean about just, just the history alone? Way more interesting than everything that happens in it. It took Calvert 18 months to finish the film. The new scenes were produced on a much lower budget with the animation being produced by freelance animators in Los Angeles and former Williams animators working with Neil Boyle at Premier Films in London. Sullivan Bluth Studios uh, and Croyer Films animated two of the song sequences. The ink and paintwork was subcontracted to Huang Film Productions in Taiwan and its division Tai Wang Film Productions in Thailand and outsourced to Varga Studio in Hungary with help from Rough Draft Studios in Glendale, California and its Korean division in Seoul, South Korea. So this suddenly became global. They were like, get on the dog and bone to every two-bit animation studio out there have you got a few months to work on a sequence for this film? Let's get this job done. Um, approximately 18 minutes of completed animation were cut by Calvert due to the repetitive nature of the scenes. These, by the way, would be the ones put into the final cut that we saw. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. Calvert said, We hated to see all this beautiful animation hit the cutting room floor, but it was the only way we could make a story out of it. Because all of this stuff he's talking about is just like boom, 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 da, 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 little, da, 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 little, da, da, like crazy factory goings on with like the thief being barged around inside a machine. Well, that bit where he falls down the roofs and bounces yeah. off all the awnings happens twice. The bit where he flew in the DVD version was it that long with a bit, the bit with the big leaves? I don't uh, it feels like that was added to for the uh, for the final. No, version. because it played through that whole section of Night on Bald Mountain. Oh, okay. I the music. Synced up Cheeky bastards. 
Williams was kind of a Rube Goldberging his way through. I don't think he was able to step back and look at the whole thing as a story. He's an incredible animator, though, incredible. One of the biggest problems we had was trying our desperate best where we had brand new footage to come up to the level of quality that he had set. It's got to be the best animated movie ever. Okay, Aladdin has literally just come out. You saw it, right? You This, uh, this. The, 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 the. Winner, loser. Sorry, it's harsh, but it's true. My God, Aladdin is an astonishing achievement. This is... The production itself is an achievement insofar as how complicated, needlessly, it was. That's the achievement here. It's not the end product. Frankly, that Richard Williams got out of this alive is quite an accomplishment. It's the procrastination and the, the constant level of perfectionism on something that's so far short of perfect. So far. Mm. Uh, there are some lovely bits in it, and animators will, will clearly have been uh, inspired by this. Uh, the army, there's a one-eyed army in there who all sort of dung, 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 dung. That is Gendy Tartakovsky, Samurai Jack, Barbarian Hordes right there. Clearly he saw this movie and loved it. There's stuff in there which clearly went into Aladdin, so it had this knock-on effect. Yeah. Um, but it's almost a masterclass in how not to run a business, how not to run a production company, and how not to produce a final film. It's so compromised. Release. After the movie was completed, Allied filmmakers, along with Majestic Films, reacquired the distribution rights from the completion board company. We are the completion board company. Calvert's version of the film was distributed in Australia and South Africa as The Princess and the Cobbler. So that's The Princess and the Cobbler, not The Thief and the Cobbler. So forget about all of those previous names. Now it's The Princess and the Cobbler. It would later be released as both The Thief and the Cobbler and Arabian Night on the 23rd of September, 1993. So again, this is the original release date we mentioned before, some 10 months after Aladdin. In December 1994, Miramax Films, then a subsidiary of Disney and had already released Aladdin first, bought the rights in North America until Miramax agreed to distribute the film. It was refused by many other American distributors. It was a very difficult film to market. It had such a reputation, Calvert recalls. If people came to it without knowing anything about it, they'd go, well, it's just a knockoff Aladdin. And my God, when was this animated? Um, If people came to this and went, what have you got for me? It's called The Thief and the... Wait, come back! (laughs) Nope. Well, what if we change its name? Nope. Change its name again to once again. Nope. nope. It had such a reputation. I don't think they were looking at it objectively, or maybe they were. Maybe that was the problem. Not looking at it objectively is William's problem. Originally planning to release the Princess and the Cobbler version, Harvey Weinstein decided to recut the film even further and released a version entitled Arabian Night with a K, Knigget. This version featured newly written dialogue by Eric Gilland, Mitchell Hitchcock, and Gary Glasberg, and a celebrity voice cast that was added months before the film's release. So basically, what they ended up doing, and this pissed off so many people who were up up until that point and pissed off retrospectively people who found out about this production they they kind of butchered the film's voice track they added huge amounts of extra narration the um, and up until now the thief and the cobbler were both mute characters the uh thief was this kind of like i say wily coyote 
type guy who was always trying to pinch things and always trying to always trying to take more than he can take mm, more than he can carry. more than he can carry how ironic and the cobbler is this sort of sweet mute kid who's always got two nails um pinched between his lips because he's a cobbler and uh, they sort of form a mouth. You never actually see his mouth because basically that they form his mouth. It's a really nice stylistic choice. Occasionally he'll go, Hoo, and like the nail will pop forwards and you'll just get the round end of it, which looks like he's going, oh, and his mouth's slightly open. It's a really nice stylistic choice. Uh, he was originally supposed to be not speaking at all. They added the voice of Matthew Broderick. I'm going to finally play you some of the movie here, but no matter what you heard in the trailer, no matter what you hear now, I promise you, it doesn't compare with sitting down and actually watching this thing play out. As for who is going to stand up against One-Eye's army, that's where our tale begins. Little did I know that the shooting star I had seen the night before was to be my own. At the time, I was a poor orphan working as a cobbler's apprentice. Life was simple. <clears throat> but all that was about to change. Not too far away, in another part of the city, lived a thief. A man of few words, but many thoughts. Good morning, Arabia. I had my coffee, I read the paper. Now it's time to get to work. Mine. The thief took his job very seriously. He would steal anything. Especially anything gold. There's something gold right now. What does that old hag have in her hand? Is it a gold statue? No, why it's bananas. Did Miramax add the songs as well then? Yes, I I I I don't know if it was the um the TV when they got all of these extra scenes. I think that was when they were farming it out to different production companies around the world. They decided they were gonna go the Disney route, so they had them sing a couple of bland songs. Mm. And they really are unexceptional. Like compared to Howard Ashman, they don't even register on the song scale. Good morning. <sighs> Why, what's the matter, Princess? Oh, I'm in a royal rut, Nanny. I know I could do more if I just had the chance. This life I live in regal splendor seems a waste. It's all pomp and circumstance, Nanny. If I could help Father, instead of just sitting at his side. If I could help just one person, maybe then he'd understand there's more to me. I'd be doing something useful. He has the pretty face. He has the sunny smile. Yes, each hair in place, and yes, she can beguile. Proper and polite, never makes a wave. Born just to delight, and bred to behave. But she is 
Like your mother, out here without a veil. Outwardly she's free, inwardly she's bound. Given half the chance, she might prove profound. Has a thought or two different from the rest. Has a point of view that must Ooh. be expressed. Yeah. Can't fault the heart of that song. Completely fully agree with the thinking behind it. But it's kind of like Michael Jackson's Heal the World. You know, a very important concept laid down in such a drippy way that no one in their right mind would want to be part of that club. Right, no. Because look, the Allied Filmmakers version, The Princess and the Cobbler, which was the first version released... Mm -hmm. Scroll down. That's the one, the one in Australia and South, South that's Africa. That's right, yeah. That has singers. Yeah. Singers for the brigands. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, like, the Allied filmmakers version, yeah. had, that's just when they were farming it out. Miramax yeah. cut it down further. No, this but is But they also added Matthew Broderick, who who is Tack the Cobbler, and so it's like... Basically, but the, the singing mm-hmm. was Steve Lively, who'd done that version of it. Gotcha. For The Thief, they added Jonathan Winters. And this was, when I saw the DVD version, the worst thing about the film. He's always talking, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to grab this. And it's like a, a heckler, actually. Just kind of, like, it's almost like it's been given this weird commentary track. It's completely disjointed with what's actually going on. And I remember saying, before I knew this was the case, this doesn't work. His mouth's not moving. This is his internal monologue. It's creepy, if anything else. And he's always making contemporary references. No one lives like this except college kids. And then he's like, just like Les Mis when people are singing. And it's like, no, it's not. And also, that like him being that wise-ass and savvy doesn't work with the fact that he's also a wily coyote buffoon. Like basically, if you got like if you're gonna do that properly, get Rodney Dangerfield. This must be the son I've heard so much about, Larry. You must meet our daughter, the debutante. She came out last spring. Whoa! Put her back in. She's not done yet. Now Hyperion and Warner Brothers actually had that idea already and put him in Rover Dangerfield, but they started with a Rodney Dangerfield-shaped dog from the word go, and every single frame of animation was geared to his delivery. Same as the genie, one of the greatest animated characters of all time, was entirely modelled on the way that Robin Williams acts. It is an exaggeration of Williams. It captures him in genie form. Pasting a voice, an internal monologue over an already animated a long time ago character... I don't even think that can work. It might. Like, if you are sublimely creative, if you are some kind of genius... 
Now, it's important to note that this was not one of William's ideas. In fact, it's probably one of the things that made him hate this version the most. He always envisioned these characters as silent, so the recobbled cut restores their lack of dialogue. Or indeed, monologue. Jake Eberts found that it was significantly enhanced and changed by Miramax after they stepped in and acquired the domestic distribution rights. He commented, comments on record claiming that these altered versions were superior to Williams's versions indicate that Eberts had also lost confidence in Williams when the completion board, we are the completion board company, bond company, seized the film. Arabian Night was quietly released by Miramax on 25th of August 1995. It opened in 510 screens and grossed $319,723 on an estimated budget of $24 million. That might be the biggest like loss of money of all time in terms of film. Cutthroat Island, it, the one that sunk Carol Co. I mentioned it earlier in my review. Mm. Cut, I was going to mention Cutthroat Island. Basically, if you wreck a studio, that's significant. Titan A.E., that was uh, the thing that basically sunk uh, Bluth Productions. Mm. John Carter lost a lot for Disney. Lost $127 million to $209 million. That's got to be incorporating advertising. Advertising, yeah, they advertised the hell out of that thing. The Miramax version of the film was to be released on VHS. Okay, so we can actually talk about the film now. Um, we'll be brief on this one, basically. Because uh, uh, m- most of the film is just business. There's very little narrative to it. Uh, simply put, the... Cobbler ends up accidentally at the palace and the princess breaks her shoe on purpose so that he'll fix it for her. He fixes it for her. They sort of make goo-goo eyes at each other. Meantime, the thief is trying to steal a load of jewels. He ends up stealing three enchanted balls from the uh, top of the uh, tower, which were supposed to protect the city of Baghdad. You take that away. Then the barbarian hordes uh, attack. Basically, it segues from Aladdin to Mulan, like halfway through the movie. And in fact, the horses in this do remind me a lot of the horses in Mulan. Um, And then so these one-eyed barbarians are going to come and invade Baghdad. To be fair, they do say that they're on, uh, oriental horses that they got from Cathay. So. Nice. Okay. Um, and That's what horses actually look like over there. Uh, the cobbler and the thief go out to try and... Well, the, co- the cobbler goes out to try and find these three golden balls. Do they find them? Because the, the royal vizier has found them after the thief dropped them and take and taken them elsewhere because he wants the city to get destroyed? He, What's his end game? We've sure. seen it twice. Oh, he's no, he's ticked off with the king at this point. Because he wants to marry Jasmine. He wants to marry um, uh, Yum Yum. Princess Yum Yum. the king said no. Yeah, the king said no. But you're so old. Um, and then the barbarian hordes attack. They have this giant war machine, which is... Obviously, totally out of place, but I like the idea that the war machine is sort of symbolic of them as a war machine. And then, but that kind of goes out the window when the cobbler trying to unhorse Jafar fires a single tack from like his cat's cradle uh, and it, it bounces in and out of the machine and makes the whole machine fall apart, showering the barbarian hordes with lava, killing everyone. That doesn't really make sense if it was a symbolic war machine at all. And the thief, in the meantime, is running all over the place. And at the end, they both get medals. The end. That's the film, basically. Uh, the, oh, um, and the thief... Oh, sorry, the cobbler obviously gets married to um, Jasmine. And the thief and the cobbler... I said earlier to Sharon, the ampersand in the title is misleading. It suggests that the thief and the cobbler are somehow in cahoots or know each other or are friends at one point the thief steals from the cobbler, but otherwise they are basically moving completely at odds of each other. They never really interact. 
they're just two different characters. The cobbler himself is mute. He's a nice guy, but he's got nothing going on. Um, Princess Jasmine, yum yum, is you know like a bit more strong. She actually un unhorses a uh, or like, you know un unbalances like the barbarian king. There's some a bit of business with the this like horde of bandits who do a sing song. Um, a lot of chasing, a lot of visual tomfoolery, but I mean, really, you're just watching a, like it's 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 both very basic and very non-eventful, and very full of stuff and very empty. It's this constant series of contradictions. And also, if you watch the Miramax cut, which is horrible, it's got this stupid wise-ass um, narration in there as well, and Matthew Broderick's simpering creep voice, uh, which is great in The Lion King, but no good here. Um, but there is another version. It, it's been re-edited um, repeatedly and restored. Richard Williams' work print was bootlegged after Calvert's version was released, and copies for years have been shared among animation fans and professionals. The problem is creating a high-quality restoration uh, that after the completion board company... ...completion board company had f- finished the film, many scenes by Williams that were removed disappeared. Many of these had fallen into the hands of private parties. Before losing... <laughs> this sounds sinister. Before losing... that, Take these to the seven corners of the earth. Before losing control of the film, Williams had originally kept all artworks safe in a fireproof basement. Right, when you read that out before, I thought, why have they specifically felt the need to state that it is a fireproof basement? Have people tried to find this material and burn it? Additionally, there are legal problems with Miramax. Ah, implying that they're ongoing. In the 2000 Annette's Annecy Festival, Williams showed Walt Disney feature animation head Roy E. Disney his work print of The Thief, which Disney liked. With Williams' support, Roy Disney began a project to restore the thief and the cobbler. He sought out original pencil tests and completed footage. Roy Disney left the Walt Disney Company in November 2003, and the project was put on hold. Disney film producer Don Hahn, he of Waking Sleeping Beauty, was later made the project supervisor of the restoration. Since Roy's death in 2009, the project was once again put on hold. In 2006, a filmmaker, artist, and fan of Williams' work named Garrett Gilchrist created a non-profit fan restoration of Williams' work print named The Thief and the Cobbler, The Recobbled Cut. It was done in as high quality as possible by combining available sources at the time, such as a heavily compressed file of Williams' work print and better quality footage from the Japanese DVD of Arabian Knigget. This edit was much supported by numerous people who had worked on the film, with exception of Richard Williams himself, including Roy Nesbitt, Alex Williams, and uh, so... That's his son. His son, yeah. Andreas Wessel Furhorn, Tony White, Holger Lane, Simon Maddox, Neil Boyle, and Steve Evangelatos. Basically, everyone he didn't fire. Many of whom lent rare material for the project. In other words, they brought stuff home with them. And they're like, have my rare material. (laughs) It's possibly those um, uh, rushes that they took out of the bin. Mm. Whatever her name was. Some minor changes were made to make it feel... More like a finished film, like adding more music and replacing storyboards with some of Fred Calvert's animation. Certain scenes like the wedding ending had to be redrawn frame by frame with Gil- by Gilchrist due to its flaws in the footage. Gilchrist described this as the most complex, independent restoration of a film ever undertaken. This edit gained positive reviews on the internet. Twitch film called it the best and most important fan edit ever made. 
I would say that Twitch Film never saw my version of The Hobbit. The recobbled cut has been revised three times in 06, 08, and 2013, each version incorporating further higher-quality materials donated by animators from the film, including two rare work prints from the Fred Calvert production that contained footage not available in the released versions. The Mark III version, released in 08, incorporated 21 minutes from a 49-minute reel of rare 35mm film. Gilchrist's latest version, Mark IV, was released in September 2013 and edited in HD, Mark Falls features about 30 minutes of the film in full HD quality, restored from a raw 35mm footage which Gilchrist edited frame by frame. Artists were also commissioned to contribute new artwork and material. Gilchrist's YouTube account, The Thief Archive, now serves as an unofficial video archive of Richard Williams' files, titles, commercials and interviews, including footage from the Nasruddin production. Williams said that while he hasn't seen Gilchrist's recobbled cut... Williams said that while he hasn't seen Gilchrist's recobble cut, acknowledged the role that the fan edits played in rehabilitating the film's reputation. Right. This is astonishing. If you're at the end of your life and you've spent your whole life making this one film and some people who love your work so much have gone to the immense trouble of basically resurrecting this footage, they took... The original DVD released by Miramax is a horrible pan-and-scan shop job. It looks like crap, it's been hacked at either side, and this re-edited version in widescreen actually looks quite good by comparison. It doesn't look as good as Aladdin by any means, even on VHS, but it looks a lot better than the horrible Miramax version. So yeah, on that uh, example... On that version, Twitch films are absolutely right. This is actually a very, very important read. It's simply because it wasn't even really a film before, and now at least it has something approaching that. It still can't really be called a film. It doesn't feel like a film. It cuts to storyboards too often. It cuts to classical music too often. They've clearly left many em empty long passages, which should have some sort of music there just for mood so that they can put in old recordings to sort of, of restored footage. It's the best version you're going to be able to see of this. It's available right now on YouTube. You guys can watch this. You'll be as nonplussed as us, but at least you'll know what the hell it's about and what the story is behind it. I really do wish that Williams would just sit down and watch this thing. You know, just as a capper on his life, just as a, a, like a, a last little click-click, a chaser. Because, ultimately, to know that people love your work that much and to actually enjoy their version of it, you know, it's you've been messed around by the studios over and over again, but you, in turn, messed everyone around for decades. So, wouldn't it be nice to just sit and watch it? I have power over people, though they may appear complex. <laughs> For me, they fall like playing cards, and I control the depths. So, yeah. Any more on The Thief and the Cobbler? I think we've covered it quite extensively. Pretty much. If you folks at home know of a film as weird as this, especially with weird production ones, I think we're probably going to cover Cutthroat Island at some point, even if it's just a movie a day, because that's an interesting story. This has been really, really fun, and the, the person who I believe recommended it to me uh, was somebody named Stratford, hashtag resistjam, at Enigmadeus, an aspiring game designer, artist, and writer. So thank you very much for mentioning that. The uh, version that I bought on Amazon 
is terrible and I don't recommend anyone get that DVD version of it. It's in fact it's less than worthless because all it does is show you an awful version of an awful movie that could actually be vastly improved by just watching the fan edit. Despite it being an awful movie, and it is, there are still some lovely moments in it. And uh, like I said, the chase sequence, a lot of the visual stuff, uh, there are occasionally nice little bits of business on on the the detail, some um, ambitious moments of um, uh, trying to capture scale. There are some lovely backgrounds. And like I said, if you're into animation, study this simply because it's a relic of the 2D era and a ghost of the 20th century. So that's The Thief and the Cobbler. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. This is Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, also known as the Tallis Fantasia. It was composed in 1910 and it's featured in this movie and there's a particular very short sequence with uh, two roses, one blue, one yellow, uh, flying through the air and dancing around each other, which have an ethereal beauty that far outmatches everything else in this film, that for some reason, combined with this piece of music, are haunting.